0: Hey, everybody, this is Joseph, one of the pastors at the First Presbyterian Church of Flint, and I wanted to welcome you to our sermon podcast. Each week, this show features the latest sermons preached here at First Pres, and we hope that they encourage you in your faith and work as you listen. This fall, we're preaching a 10 week series of sermons called When Religion Fails. And we're using Jesus' teachings and parables from the Gospel of Luke to reconsider what it means to truly follow Christ. Here's this week's sermon. September 3rd, October 2nd, February 12th, May 20th, four dates that come around each year and which probably mean very little to you, and that's okay, church. September 3rd, October 2nd, February 12th, May 20th. These dates are some of the calendar days that are filled with significance in our household. Dates that get remembered each year. Dates which are... Sometimes celebrated and anticipated dates which get marked and circled on the wall calendar There are other significant dates for us too: January 15th April 24th March 23rd August 18th August 19th But for now, I'm thinking of these four September 3rd October 2nd February 12th and May 20th You have dates like this, I'm sure For us, in order, they are September 3rd, my wife Katie's birthday, October 2nd, the day in the year 1999 when Katie and I went to a homecoming dance at Carmen Ainsworth High School and I knew I was in love, February 12th, the day Katie and I got engaged in 2005, and May 20th, our wedding anniversary, which celebrated its sweet 16th celebration this past May. Now the October 2nd homecoming one is a bit silly for us. It's usually marked by me trying to dig out a picture of Katie and I posed awkwardly for pictures in the way that high school couples are posed awkwardly for pictures and me trying to find Ricky Martin's late 1990s hit She's All I Ever Had and blasting it from my phone so my kids roll their eyes. But the other dates, Katie's birthday, our engagement day, our anniversary, these are dates that are all celebrated and cherished in our household by at least three ritual actions. First, a date night is planned, often at a local restaurant. Presents are purchased and wrapped. Cards are selected and a heartfelt message is written and signed by the giver. And finally, flowers are often acquired and put in a vase on our dining room table. These are the core Ritual actions that surround the celebration of these events and while the restaurants and the presents and the flowers have changed over the years as we've recognized and celebrated these dates in Los Angeles and then in Ithaca, Michigan and now here in Flint the basic pattern has stayed the same. But the only reason the ritual actions mean anything at all is because Katie and I both know and appreciate what the date we're ritualizing signifies. The flowers and the date and the presents on Katie's birthday, for example, are ultimately symbols, little things that point to something deeper and more significant, namely that I love my wife and I want to express that deep love in ways that communicate to her how much I care. Now say, for example, I come home on September 3rd with wilted flowers from the bottom of the clearance bin at Kroger where I quickly stopped to grab whatever cheap card I could find and maybe a gift card to Amazon as a present, and I set them on the counter, and then I said, happy birthday, Uh, I guess let's go to McDonald's with the kids. (laughs) I think she might sense that while the ritual acts have been technically completed, this go around, they lack any deeper sense of love or affection And as a result, the gestures would come across as rather meaningless. The only way the core actions can mean anything at all is if there's something else there. Something deeper that is motivating the action. Something beyond just the ritual. Something that is deep and personal and rich. In today's Gospel reading, we meet Jesus on the road that leads from Galilee in the north to Jerusalem in the south, and today, this road has led him to an unnamed village located in the neutral zone between the county of Samaria and the county of Galilee. The people who lived in Galilee were Jews. The people who lived in Samaria were called Samaritans. And for a Jewish rabbi like Jesus, a Jewish rabbi who had Jewish disciples, being on the border between Galilee and Samaria was a troubling place to be spending any amount of time. You don't need a super long, drawn-out history lesson on the nearly 750-year-old ethnic enmity between Jesus' Jewish ancestors and the people who lived in the district of Samaria. But just for fun, here's 30 seconds of it. In the period of time after King Solomon, the northern kingdom of Israel eventually gets into big-time trouble with its Assyrian neighbors to the east, and after a whole lot of political maneuvering and war, the whole kingdom is ransacked by the Assyrian army and carted off never to return. The Assyrians, though, are smart, and they send in select people of their own choosing to repopulate the lands and retill the farms left vacant. These people were intentionally intermarried with the Jewish prisoners, and their descendants moved into the area of the Bible that is called Samaria. And eventually, these transplants get themselves a priest who organizes their religious life around a very different temple built on a very different mountain called Mount Gerizim. And far from keeping to themselves in their tucked away region, the Samaritans would politically align themselves with anybody who opposed what the Jews were doing in Jerusalem. They actually go down themselves to forcibly prevent The Jewish exiles from rebuilding the second temple. They edit their own version of the first five books of the Bible which softened the unique call of God to the Jewish people. Later, they sided with the certifiably horrible ruler named Antiochus Epiphanes, a guy who nobody liked and everybody feared. The Samaritans conducted horrible acts of religious terrorism on their Jewish half-ancestors, like when Jesus was about 10 years old, some Samaritans smuggled in human bones and placed them all around the perimeter of the Jerusalem temple at Passover, preventing Jews from observing their most important festival. In the years after Jesus, the Samaritans sided with the Romans who came down to stop an uprising and who destroyed the temple in Jerusalem once And for all one ancient rabbi sums up the relationship between Jews and Samaritans by saying whoever eats bread baked by a Samaritan is like somebody who has eaten the flesh of a pig so yeah not great but here Jesus is traipsing through the region between his homeland and the lands of his ancient enemies he stops in a village where he is approached by a small community of people with a variety of skin diseases who had been forced into isolation so they didn't spread it around. In our Bibles, these people are called lepers, but they didn't have leprosy like we know it today. They didn't have, technically, Hansen's disease. The word leprosy in the Bible is used to describe a whole bunch of skin conditions, some permanent, some temporary, but all of which... Were transmissible if you were to contract a virus or a bacterial infection like this you separated yourselves from others until it ran its course and then you could have a priest inspect you and say you're fine for those interested you could read Leviticus chapter 14 where the law actually provides a very specific list of commands governing what to do when your skin disease heals First, there's a ritual inspection by a priest, then there's sacrifices to offer. You've got to shave your entire body, take a bath, and then boom. You might be hairless, but you're considered ritually cleansed. Then you wait eight more days, offer up some more sacrifices, smear some oil on your ears and toes, and then boom, you're back in the community. So here we are with Jesus as he enters this village And a group of 10 skin-diseased people start calling out to him from afar. If you glance at verse 13, you'll see that they already know Jesus' name. They call him by name. Jesus, they say. They even call him Master. And they ask Jesus to have mercy on them. What have they heard about Jesus so far? Has Jesus' reputation spread to this border village? What are they hoping for when they say those words, have mercy on us? Maybe they are just after a little bit of charity, the provision of food, or something specific. Maybe they just want Jesus to bless them. Or maybe they've heard about Jesus' acts of healing before, and they're hoping that he can make them well. The text does not tell us what they wanted from Jesus. All they cry out is, have mercy upon us. And when Jesus sees them, he then orders them to go and show themselves to the priests, which, as we've said, is what you do if you've had a disease, but the disease is all gone. Now, the command to go and show themselves to a priest is an interesting one. If If the lepers were Jews, their priests would be located at the temple in Jerusalem. If the lepers were Samaritans then their priests would be in Shechem, near Mount Gerizim. Both Jews and Samaritans had Leviticus chapter 14 in their Bibles, and so both would have understood what they needed to do, but in very different locations. So whose priests are the right ones to go to, Jesus? Which temple is the correct one to go for cleansing, Jesus? Jesus doesn't say, only show yourself to the priests. We learn later that at least one of these lepers is a Samaritan, a fact that was not lost on Jesus. And in telling them to go and do this ritual act associated with cleansing, Jesus fails to capitalize on the moment to condemn the Samaritans for worshiping in the wrong spot. But for a guy who uses Samaritans as good examples in his parables, and who spends time visiting with Samaritans at roadside wells, this should not surprise us. Anyway, Jesus says, go on, do your religious obligations. Go and carry out those actions associated with the cleansing of skin diseases. Go and show yourself to the priests. And the text says they went. Some, presumably, headed to Shechem in Samaria, and some for Jerusalem in Judea. And at a certain point in their journey, they look down at their diseased spots, and they're gone. The cadaver-like appearance of their legs or arms or fingers is reversed. They are medically cured from their disease. Now, they still have religious obligations to observe, to be welcomed back into the community, but their disease has been healed. How far did they get? toward their destinations? We don't know. A few steps? A few miles? Were they getting close to their destinations when they realized their disease was gone? We don't know, and I suppose it doesn't really matter, except that for one of the ten lepers who notices his disease is gone, Luke tells us that he turned back. In Greek, he hupostrephoed. He returned to Jesus. This is a significant word for Luke, the gospel writer, to use here. It's one of his favorite words to describe the way people in the gospels experience a key moment with God and then they return to their life energized, exhilarated, or renewed. It is a big word to use. The shepherds see the infant Christ in Bethlehem and they hupostrefo, to their flocks. They return to their flocks, glorifying and praising God. Jesus is baptized, experienced the anointing of the Holy Spirit, and he returns from the Jordan River, led the spirit a demon possessed man whom jesus heals was told to return to his home and declare what god has done which he does the disciples return from a mission jesus sent them on rejoicing in all that god's spirit had allowed them to accomplish The women standing at the tomb see the risen Christ and they return to the other disciples and tell them about seeing the Lord. And in the final sentence of the Gospel of Luke, the disciples who see Jesus ascend into heaven worship there and then return to Jerusalem with great joy where they bless God. And so here in this story... A Samaritan leper has been healed by a Jewish rabbi. The Samaritan leper who had a collision with the grace of God in his life, who experienced the intervention of God in healing his disease. This Samaritan returns to Jesus. He turns back and with a loud voice, the text says, began to praise God for his cleansing. Then look, look at verse 16. This man, in his joy, throws himself down on his face before Jesus. And what does it say? It says, he thanked him. Filled to full with the joy that comes from being healed, the former leper returns to Jesus, whom he rightly recognizes as the agent of his healing, and he pours out his gratitude in public. Jesus wonders about this. Like, where are the others? Didn't I heal nine other people? Was there anybody else that was filled with joy and gratitude? Where are they? And then Jesus looks up at the Samaritan and he says, Get up and go on your way. Your faith has made you well. Not your faith has healed your disease, but your faith has made you well. Literally, it's your faith has saved you. Or... In another translation, which I prefer, your faith has made you whole. The Samaritan's willingness to direct his joy into gratitude and his actions of returning and thanking Jesus in a very public and personal way show Jesus that for this guy, God's power to heal and cure diseases is not something he's taken for granted, but something to mark, to note, to celebrate, to cherish. And above all to be grateful for this guy gets it jesus remarks and he is a samaritan and this kind of faith this is the kind of faith that makes somebody whole complete it's the kind of faith that takes the time to notice the work of god in an area of your life and then turn around and give god thanks and praise for it it's the kind of faith that has a personal coefficient to it, it's a, a kind of faith that we have which knows that we personally have collided with the grace of God in a particular way and we have been changed because of it. It's the kind of faith that fuels the best kind of religious ritual activity because it energizes those acts. It fills them with new meaning and hope and joy, which makes them all the more sweet and hopeful. I do not think this text is about comparing or contrasting the difference between observing ritual actions and having a personal faith. Because I think the Samaritan left Jesus there and carried out those religious obligations. I think he went to the priests and followed the commands about sacrificing and bathing and having oil smeared on his ears and all the things that the Bible says to do. He said all the liturgically correct things to say and offered all the liturgically appropriate sacrificial animals, but because of his personal encounter with Jesus, those actions took on additional meaning. They became life-giving rituals that were meaningful, laden with joy and celebration. For the other nine who were healed, those rituals may have just been perfunctory obligatory, do it because the Bible says so, things to do. And like my cheap flowers and date night at McDonald's, it would have been done without the deeper connection of something else. It's week four of our fall series, When Religion Fails. We're looking at the ways in which these stories from Luke's gospel stress tests our religious assumptions about things. How does following Jesus put pressure on The conventional religious actions and thoughts that are part of our life as Christians. Today we're finding that religion fails when it forgets that at the heart of all of our liturgy and ritual life is a personal encounter with Christ. If you're here today, and whether you're here today in person or participating on the live stream, you're participating in a religious ritual that we call weekly worship. We have readings and prayers, a sermon, hymns, a creed, and so forth. Every week, we spend about 75 minutes or so doing these ritual acts. And if we're not careful, the doing of these things can become the end game. We put a check mark on our box, went to church, move on about our weeks. The ritual acts of worship are like those Ritual acts my family observes on ritually important days and but in order for them to work correctly In order for the religious things we do here the prayers and the readings and the hymns to function correctly We must come in attuned to the ways in which we have personally experienced the goodness and grace of God in our lives We must bring with us to worship the ways in which we have seen God's activity In our lives this past week we must consider and reflect and recognize the ways in which god has intervened is intervening and may yet intervene in our lives this week and here's the deal one of our core assumptions about god is that god is at work in our lives let the church say amen god did things last week God will do things this week. God will do things tomorrow. God may be doing something right now. When we figure out how to notice these things, when we are able to step back and consider and ponder them, when we stop taking things for granted in our lives, we begin to acknowledge the grace of God, and then we step into the ritual acts of weekly worship invigorated And Ready able to point to the ways that we saw God at work And so now we're ready to thank God and praise God and worship God and be ready to hear God's Word around us Religion fails When as for the nine other lepers in today's story, it is only about the doing of religious obligations But When it becomes a vehicle for true praise and worship by people who are attuned to the ways God has been a part of their life then It becomes a saving faith, one that makes us whole and complete. May the First Presbyterian Church of Flint be a people who are aware of the way God is at work in our lives. May we be a people who take time to reflect and consider and pray so that we might notice God's activity more readily. May we be a people who show up here on Sundays ready and eager to give thanks to God for his goodness towards us, and may all our religious rituals, all of our hymns and prayers and sermons and readings be rooted and established in the radical love and wild grace of God that finds us, frees us, and sets us in a new direction. I speak to you in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let the church say, Amen. thanks for listening this week. The First Presbyterian Church of Flint is an historic downtown congregation proudly part of the Presbyterian Church USA, the largest Presbyterian denomination in the United States. You can learn more about us at fpcf.org. You can check out our weekly live stream broadcasts on our channel on YouTube. But better yet, you can stop by any Sunday at 10.30 a.m. to worship with us. We would love to welcome you and your family to worship. Have a great week.